Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic's podcast. Last night, Donald Trump and Joe Biden faced off in the first of three presidential debates. But who came out on top? In this podcast, The Critic's US editor, Oliver Wiseman, spoke to the publisher and editor of American Greatness, Chris Buzkirk, about what we learned last night, as well as the state of the presidential race more generally. Chris Buzkirk, thanks for joining The Critic uh, podcast. Let's start with um, last night's debate and the the headline question, which is who you think um, came out on top last night. I, I think that's an easy question to, to answer, and I, I guess there's sort of a Rorschach test on this uh, to some extent. But I think Trump ran away with the debate. He, um, it, to me, I, I look. I was watching it, and uh, I thought when I saw Trump come out of the gate uh, strong, energetic, and basically on the attack from the opening bell, I thought, okay, he's going to win this, and he just never looked back. I mean, it was sort of. Um, you know, he, I mean, he was very Trumpian in the sense he was always on the attack, uh, but he obviously had, uh, I guess it was a, a pre-thought-out strategy, or maybe it's just his uh, instinctive self, which is, I'm going to say what I want to say, I think this game is rigged, I'm not going to play by the rules, I'm going to take the time, uh, I'm going to take the time away from my opponent, and yeah, I mean, look, that I thought that was a pretty strong uh, performance, and Look, I said this in my piece uh, for you, Oliver, that um, I know that a lot of super political people will say, you know, that wasn't dignified or, or they'll try and score it on points about though they didn't get into the deep policy. There was some policy talk. You know, I thought Trump made some good points on that. But uh, but, it, you know, I really think that it's the I really think it's more the aesthetic. It's the impression that uh, people are left with of sort of strength versus weakness, energy versus uh, sleepiness. And, you know, I, I just thought Trump did very, very well. I guess just to um, to push back a bit on that and put the question in a slightly different way then. I mean, what do you think Trump offered voters who hadn't made their minds up yet like I, my my view of the debate was that there was a lot in there that if you're a trump supporter um and you're quite an engaged um trump voter you, you would have enjoyed a lot of, of what he did last night you know it was him at his best it was like him at his rallies and um and, and also in terms of the subject matter he kind of uh, what he focused on but you know would yeah would you worry that as as a as someone who, who wants trump to win i mean would you worry that you know there wasn't really much of a pitch to a kind of undecided voter and an undecided voter worried about the economy, the pandemic and, and, and so on. Yeah, I know is the, is my short answer. I like, you know, I like you ask a yes or no question. I like to give you a straight yes or no answer. Um, but no, do I worry about that? Not really because I, but I'm going to, I do want to answer it in two parts. So uh, on the one hand, that's always been the Trump strategy from 2015, which is I want to, uh, I want to get my people to the polls period. You know, so, you know, political people, you know, people who run campaigns will say, okay, that's a turnout strategy. You get your base, uh, you get your base out and you kind of don't worry about the other side. That may be sort of trying to make this overly scientific, but I think that basically is Trump's strategy, whether it's explicit or implicit, it's just who he is. You know, he is, he's playing to his people. 
Uh, he wants to get his people out. But there's another element of this which I think is underappreciated, which is that to the extent that the, the old people, you know, sort of those persuadable people, I don't know how many of those there are right now, but maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's 10%-ish of the electorate, of those persuadable people who look at this and they take the view like, oh my gosh, that was a dumpster fire, that was terrible, I can't even, I can't even bear to watch it. Those are people who basically lean Biden, right? Those are not people who like Trump to begin with, because it's just like Trump is aggressive, right? You know, he's got this sort of animal cunning. That's always who he's been. But to the extent that it bec it does become a dumpster fire at the debates, that actually has the effect of depressing voter turnout of Biden leaning voters. And so there is a, like a game theory uh, aspect of this too, which is, yeah, the like the red meat for the base motivates the Trump base. Those people are going to turn out and vote. But to the extent that there's a, another part of the electorate that looks at this and says, ah, I can't even, I can't stand it. This is why I hate politics. A pox on both your houses. And, you know, some of those people don't vote. That actually helps Trump. Right. And so that, that, you know, that, that's where people don't get this, you know, is that, it, the only thing that matters is getting your people to the polls and having more of them voting. And I think that, you know, whether that is, like I said, whether that's something that Trump uh, sort of games out ahead of time, you know, I would kind of actually kind of doubt it. But that's what I think is the practical impact. And and, and as for as for Biden's performance, I mean, you know, my, my, my personal view is that he was who he is, which is, uh, you know, not, you know, past his prime and seems seems a lot older than um seems a lot older than Trump, even though he's there, they're a similar age and, um, you know, syntactically not as, <laughs> as sharp as he once was, but do you think he was, you know, did he really live up to the kind of Trump campaign caricature of him, which is that, which is sort of, which is sort of ridiculous version of that, where he's kind of, you know, senile and needs to be sort of, needs minders to take him from one, one place to another and so on. Biden probably did not live up to the caricature, but I mean, I th people always knew it was a caricature. There's a lot of hyperbole out there about that. I mean, you know, Biden is slow, right? He's always been slow. Like, and, and that's just people who know him know that people who've been around Washington know that he's, he's always been just sort of that backslapping guy from this tiny little state, you know, who, you know, he becomes Senator with like 14 votes because that is a big majority in Delaware. And that's uh, and then he just kind of rides that and milks it for decades on end. But does he ever accomplish anything? No. I mean, the guy has really just been a cipher his entire career. And so when you when you think about, well, did he did, was he up there like a drooling, senile mess? No. But did he portray somebody who would, that you would want to entrust with leadership of the country, like the leader of the free world, somebody who's vigorous, energetic, who really has a good command of what's going on? Absolutely not. I mean, this was somebody who, uh, you know, it's, I mean, if you were writing some sort of dystopian fiction and you said, I don't know, let's, uh, I don't know, let's, let's project a world where the, where this powerful country is run by a gerontocracy and, you know, sort of shadowy figures just install this guy who's was, you know, kind of low IQ and way past his prime you'd write Joe Biden and that's what and I think that came through pretty clearly last night. I mean he was incoherent. He contradicted himself a bunch of times. He was uh what he's always been, which is he kind of has these lines that he memorizes. Um but when you look at that basically you see a guy you see him for what he is. I mean this is a guy who's almost eighty. I mean honest to God, what are we doing 
with you know, even considering anybody, even some people I agree with, who's somebody who's almost 80 for president. I mean, I think that in, uh, in and of itself is an absurdity. Well, Trump's, I mean, Trump's almost 82, so. Well, look, I, look, Trump is, a, Trump is 74. Um, he would be 78 at the end of a second term. Um, he's a very, he's a, he, look, he's a guy who's vigorous in his, in his seventies. Obviously he displayed that last night, but I, but my, but my point still holds. I mean, the idea that we have two candidates at that age, that, I mean, there's something that says something about the nature of American politics and society. I mean, it really is time for, it really is time for that generation to pass the reins onto the next generation. Well, we cannot, I mean, you look at uh, sort of the gerontocracy that exists in the U.S. Congress, and it's the same thing, and it, it is, it really is bad for the country. Well, I would, I would certainly agree with you there. And um, on Trump's performance, even, even though you, you think he did a good job last night, what would be your kind of, what were the moment, what do you think his weak spots are? What do you think his, the moments last night that aren't great for Trump were? What do you think There's he needs a, to improve on between things. now I mean, and the next you know, Tactically, uh, Trump's style which has served her well i mean people love to criticize trump why does he tweet this so much why does he say do these things in debates well i don't know he but he did win the presidency so you know to some extent i even take my own criticisms with a grain of salt because like you know winning matters and it worked for him nonetheless i will give unsolicited advice um but tactically there were a number of times last night where uh just from a debating, from just on the pure debating, it would have been smarter for Trump to let Biden talk a little bit more, to give him some, to give him a little bit more rope that he could hang himself with, because he was, you could see places where Biden was going down um, a path where he didn't know what he was going to say, he was kind of stammering, or he was saying something that was really kind of, was kind of dumb, and Trump stepped on him. And sometimes it's better, like, you know, give him that 10 extra seconds to say something and then pounce. And so that's sort of my, that would be my sort of tactical advice is be, like, so be a little more patient sometimes and let, sometimes let your opponent hurt themselves. On the substance side, you know, on like where could Trump have, uh, have, have done better? You know, he could have given, I thought, a much more substantive answer, for instance, on the critical race theory stuff and talk about like, you know, this is something, this isn't just, oh, sensitivity training, which, you know, is problematic enough. You know, this is stuff that, has its own like racial biases built into it that is that divides Americans like you know based on the color of their skin or based on their race. And I think if Trump had made that case in very sort of common sense terms, that could have actually been very powerful. So that would have been helpful. There were a couple other things on um, uh, you know, for instance, on uh, riots. Um, you know, I think that Trump could have been more specific, you know, on, on Antifa. He did a pretty good job. But again, when Biden said, well, Antifa is not an organization, it's an idea, it would, Trump could have easily had a number of statistics or examples that he could have just rattled off. And I thought that would have been powerful. So there are some places where, you know, there are things that you know are going to get brought up. And just have your just have that kind of slam dunk powerful example at, at the ready. So that, that that sort of would be my advice on that side of things. Yeah, I think the Antifa line was maybe Biden's worst moment, actually. And, and I think that's the one you'll probably see the most of in Trump ads going forwards, right? Is this idea. It's being seen to, you know, not as equivocally, unequivocally, sorry, kind of um, disown and, and, and um, denounce um, Antifa. On, on, on Trump's side, though, um, how do you think the, I mean, the, the final section of the debate was, was this question of the integrity of the election.
and Trump, um, you know, this this was not news if anyone's been listening to what Trump's been saying in, in recent weeks and months. But Trump did not give what people a lot of what a lot of people want, which is which is a, which is an assurance that if he if he has lost the election, uh, clearly lost the election, you know, he, he he'll concede, uh, and instead talked about kind of boxes of ballots in rivers and and, and things. Um, I guess I have two questions for you on that. The first is about um, the substance of that and, and, and you know what what the president says what versus the reality of how you see you see American democracy. Um, and the second is whether you think this is a good thing for the president to be talking about. Is this the language of, of a winner, as you said earlier? Yeah, so uh, look, I mean this is one of these uh, this is one of these questions which it's like it's the it's the gotcha question, it's like the disavowal que- question where, you know, I think these questions are uh, you know, they're tendentious at best which is, you know, will you commit to uh, will you commit to a peaceful transfer of power these sorts of things. They did this in 2016 um, as well and Trump did the exact same thing he gave this exact same sort of answers which is you know hey we'll see let's see what the facts on the ground are at the time um and it's sort of a he's sort of trolling a little bit at the same time there's like an underlying um there's an underlying truth there which is well I don't know like you know, there's all these mail-in ballots are they going to certify them are you know are there we know that there's going to be a huge fight in every state that's close Right, it's going to be a legal fight. You know, probably a replay of two of two thousand, where there's recounts, and you've got and you've got watchers, election watchers there, people watching the hand, the hand counts. I mean, it. You want to talk about what's going to be the dumpster fire? If it's close, it's going to be that. And so Trump's saying, you know, implicitly, hey, the we know that the Democrats are lawyered up. We know that they have literally hired over a thousand lawyers to do. Um, to do election stuff on election day and to contest ballots and to go to court, uh, and the and the Republicans have done the same thing. Have hired a bunch of lawyers, and so he's saying, well, you know, basically, it's going to be if it's close, it's going to be a fight after the election, and so I'm not committing to anything ahead of time other than I guess we're going to have that fight. Um, is that is that a good thing for the republic? <laughs> Probably not. Right, but that is uh, that that's where we are, and we've been there for at least twenty years. Right, this started with the two thousand election, but I would remind people that in two thousand sixteen, when when people were asking Trump this exact same question, and he gave the same sort of answers, um, it was actually Hillary Clinton and uh, and, and uh, entities aligned with Clinton that went to court the day after the election in order to contest. Uh, the certification in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. You know, they filed three lawsuits to try and delay or overturn those certifications. So, you know, this is uh, this is what I always say. You know, th- there's a lot of projection that goes on from left to right. Like whatever they're, you know, I kind of the rule of thumb is whatever they're accusing you of is what they're planning. Okay, well, let's let's just take a step back, I should say, from the debates and um, look at the race more generally. I mean, ha- what's your read on the race? I mean, do you believe the kind of polling consensus, which is that basically Biden has a kind of reasonable lead at the moment uh, and Trump needs to find a way of, of, of making up ground? Um, yes and no. Um, Lynn, let me just explain what I mean by that. So uh, I do believe that there is a, that Biden has a national lead uh, at the moment um, in this meaning if you ask, I don't know, a thousand people or five thousand people, just you take a representative sample of all fifty states, does Biden have a lead in that in that sampling? Probably the answer is yes. 
Uh, but that also doesn't matter uh, because that's not the way the system works. The system works based on the Electoral College and you have to win the states. And so when you look at how the states actually shake out, um, I think it's actually quite close. Uh, and I think maybe there's a slight edge to Trump, slight. Here's how I, here's how I see the state of the race right now based on um, sort of polling and reports I'm getting from people who are doing field work for the campaign and for, and for some of the uh, outside, you know, non-campaign but aligned groups is, um, you know, start with the states that Trump won in 2016. And basically, he's going to win for sure all of those states, except the following. The following will be the question marks. Um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. Okay, so six states. Those are the question mark states. So the way I think about it is I look at there's, those even kind of bifurcate into two groups, uh, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona being the ones that are probably Trump states, but uh, Democrats think that they have a chance to pick those states off, and if they do, it becomes really difficult for Trump because it would mean he has to sweep all the upper Midwest states. Um, but the polling out of North Carolina, Arizona, and Florida is uh, either dead heat or Trump up by a little, like a half a point or a point, which basically is kind of, you know, a dead heat with a, you know, kind of leaning in Trump's direction. Um, and then you take those upper Midwest states, you look at Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, you know, again, we, we've got Trump down two in Wisconsin, we've got Trump up 0.7 in Michigan, and we've got Trump down one in Pennsylvania. That's got, I mean, that's as close as it gets. Those are all within the margin of error. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is who comes out to vote, right? That's so close. It really depends a lot on who shows up. And so you talk about like the sort of the enthusiasm and the intensity of, uh, the intensity of support. And this is a place where in every single state that we have polled, we find that Trump actually has higher favorability ratings than Biden does. Now, they're, both of them are actually low, you know, by any historical standard. But the idea that Biden is very popular um, or that, you know, people really like him is just belied by the polling data. Even, you know, he's running kind of basically a 40% favorability rating and Trump's running like 44 Right, which is weirdly low for both of them, but it speaks to the fact that you know Biden is kind of a stand-in. He's a cutout. Even people who are going to vote for him aren't that excited about it. And uh, so, you know, basically, I look at where are we right now. North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona are very, very likely to go for Trump, and that really focuses the rest of the campaign heavily in the Upper Midwest again. I guess if I, I mean, I, I think a lot of what we're I mean, both on the debates and the, and the state of the race, a lot of this comes down to your theory of 2016, right? And why, why Trump won then and, and how that applies to today. And if I, was a, if, I, if I wanted Trump to win, my, my worry would be that in 2016, he had a pretty electorally compelling and coherent critique of, um, of the, um, you know, received wisdom in Washington uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a sort of, self-regarding political class that pushed that received wisdom over the last quarter of a century, whether that's foreign policy or, or trade or, 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 or whatever. Um, 
and that that was a that was a, that was a, that was a powerful powerful message and that this time uh a it's different because he's the president so he is you know has to defend the status quo more than he, he he used to but b if you look at last night's debate again there's a sort of rabbit warren of kind of trump world kind of obsessions that he, he's into whether it's the election or whether it's the sort of flynn stuff and the last election and obamagate and you know stuff you're into if you're if you're a big trump fan but but i just worry that that's you know if i was a, if i was a trump supporter i worry that that's not really giving people a reason to vote for him or enough people i should say yeah, I feel like this is the this is the question, um, and then, you know, we, I, I don't really think I know the answer 100 percent at this point. But the, you know, this is where the the Democrats and um, you know and their allies have been very successful over the past you know, three and a half or so years. I mean, they um, you know after, between the election in 2016 and the inauguration in January of 17, uh, the Democrats immediately undertook a very comprehensive strategy to discredit Trump and to try and overturn that election uh, by claiming that he was, uh, you know, he was in Putin's pocket, uh, you know, they had the FBI involved, they had the Department of Justice involved, they, and you know, only now, years later, almost four years later, are the documents coming out where the, you know, the lawyers who, for the Department of Justice, for the FBI are saying, well, if I had known this is what they were doing, I would never have signed off on this. So there's all these, there's all this scandal, right? It, they tried to foist it on Trump. They spent three years on the Russia stuff. They impeached him at the beginning of this year, which we nobody talks about anymore, right? That was the thing that, you know, it was the most important thing in the country in January. And then immediately, I guess, Democrats thought, eh, well, okay, it didn't work. Next. But, you know, all of the, all of these manufactured scandals that were, that were created, uh, by the by, Democrats and pushed in the media, pushed in Congress. Yeah, they create this. They've really stymied Trump. They've taken up a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of mind share. And so that's where when you then you know we go to the debate last night. It's like, well, why is he talking about the Flynn stuff? You know, does anybody outside of the uh, of Trump supporters even care about that? I would guess probably no. Um, but. The Trump supporters care deeply about that stuff, and I hear from—I mean, I hear from our readers all the time, or even just people I know in in my personal life who are, you know, not in politics, but they're sort of politically aware and you know supportive of Trump. These people know this subject and the details and the personalities intimately. I mean, it's like in the way that people who are, you know, huge sports fans—they can tell they, you know, they can tell you, you know, who won the. MVP of some obscure league in 1956. I mean, these people uh, who are aligned with Trump, they know this stuff and they care about it. So it's hard to parse, you know, how does this play? I mean, does it motivate somebody who is on the fence? It's tough for me to make that case, but it is uh, it is actually a very powerful motivating factor for the people who are already um, aligned with Trump. But to your point, you know, you think about the critique that Trump offered in 2015 and 16, it was powerful. It was trenchant. It really motivated people. But we're not honestly getting a lot of that explicitly uh, this time around. It's a different campaign. I feel like a lot of that critique is implicit, um, where the way he contrasts himself with Biden and with the people who Biden surrounds himself with, he's saying, you know, I am the president, but basically I'm still isolated. I'm still an outsider. Um, and you can see it all around me because the administrative state, the permanent bureaucracy, 
has basically tried to get me out of office from the day I set foot in Washington. Well, Chris, that seems like a good place to leave it. So um, thank you very much for, for, for talking to us. Been a pleasure. Thanks. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.